0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Robert Sokolo, Professor Emeritus at Princeton University who explains the unprecedented global dangers that led the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists to move their doomsday clock forward to 90 seconds before midnight. Isa Amro, executive director of Friends of Hebron, who shares his views on Israel's new extremist right-wing government and the recent escalation of Israeli-Palestinian violence. And Francesca Emanuele, a Peruvian sociologist who discusses the long-running race and class divide in Peru that's provoked the current political crisis, mass protests, and increasing violence. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: South Korea's conservative president, Yoon Sung-yul, shocked Western observers when, during a speech on January 11th, he speculated that a day may come and the threat from North Korea requires America to deploy nuclear weapons back to the peninsula. Failing that, the president said, South Korea could acquire its own nukes. The comments before South Korean military and defense officials demonstrated a new aggressive posture to counter North Korea's expanding nuclear capacity. If South Korea were to acquire nuclear weapons, it would reverse long-standing policy of living under the protection of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. Observers say President Yoon's combative language was designed to appeal to his right-wing base, as well as put pressure on both the U.S. and China to rein in North Korea's nuclear threat. South Korea signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in 1975 and a 1991 declaration with North Korea pledging not to test, produce, or use nuclear weapons, but Pyongyang withdrew from the agreement in 2006 when it conducted its first nuclear test. Last year, North Korea conducted a record number of missile tests and launched intercontinental ballistic missiles. On January 21st, Canada settled a $2.8 billion lawsuit with 325 First Nations and Indigenous communities over abuses at government-supported Indian residential schools. The new settlement, which still must be approved by a court, resolves a class-action suit first brought in 2012 by the First Nations that sought compensation for the erosion of their cultures and languages by residential schools. In 2015, Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission concluded abuses at Indian residential schools where over 3,200 children died constituted cultural genocide. Indigenous children were forcibly taken from their families to attend 130 residential schools from the late 1800s to the early 1990s. Students there were forbidden, sometimes under the threat of violence, from speaking their ancestral languages. Hundreds of unmarked graves of children were first identified in 2021 on the grounds of former residential schools. There, thousands of Indigenous students died from disease, malnutrition, neglect, and violence. With this settlement, the Canadian government has provided a total of $10 billion in restitution for abuses of Indigenous children. Since the onset of the COVID pandemic three years ago, the state of Montana has attracted more than 20,000 new full-time wealthy residents, many fleeing big cities, searching for a better quality of life. The boom in ski resorts and outdoor recreation areas there has produced extreme inequality and gentrification in the state amid skyrocketing housing prices. Many construction workers employed to build million-dollar homes nestled in the Rocky Mountains for wealthy out-of-staters are forced to live in homeless shelters in the nearby city of Bozeman. In the area north of Yellowstone National Park is another gentrification hotspot. The Yellowstone Club offers the world's only private ski resort with membership restricted to the rich and powerful. Working people are forced to scramble for an affordable place to live and drive long commutes to make a living. In Bozeman, rents average more than $2,200 a month. Signing a long-term apartment lease is difficult, since many landlords prefer short-term, high-priced vacation rentals. Home prices in Bozeman now average over $600,000, up nearly 50% since 2020. Montana, which has long had one of the lowest rates of income inequality in the country, is now shifting to a state of haves and have-nots, and it's happening fast. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. (music)
0: In the last week of January, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists Doomsday Clock was moved forward to 90 seconds before midnight, the closest the clock has ever been to midnight, a metaphor for global catastrophe, since the clock was launched in 1947. The Doomsday Clock, used to alert humanity to imminent threats to human civilization and the planet, moved from 100 seconds to midnight, where it's been set since 2020. The decision to move the clock forward was due largely but not exclusively to the ongoing war in Ukraine and the increased risk of nuclear escalation. The new clock time was also influenced by continuing threats posed by the climate crisis and the breakdown of global norms and institutions needed to mitigate risks associated with advancing technologies and biological threats such as COVID-19. Your reporter spoke with Robert Sokolo, theoretical physicist and professor emeritus of mechanical and aerospace engineering at Princeton University, who serves as a member of the Bulletin Science and Security Board that, along with support from 10 Nobel laureates, sets the doomsday clock annually. Here, Professor Sokolow explains the unprecedented global dangers that led to the doomsday clock being moved forward to 90 seconds before midnight.
2: This year, we announced a movement of about 10 seconds from 100 to 90 toward midnight. And with a clear conviction in our group, very little division among us, that the world was more dangerous this January, if you like, than last January. And the major reason for that was the introduction of the possibility of using nuclear weapons in the Ukraine war, which President Putin announced he was cons- could, could conceivably use them. And he continues to do so. He continues to suggest that nuclear weapons are more usable than we would, than most of us would want to even begin to concede.
0: As you talk about the, the horrifying specter of nuclear war as a result of the war in Ukraine, is it the concern of the scientists and others on the panel at the doomsday clock that it may not be a deliberate decision, that in war there is a lot of clouded judgment, there's miscalculation, and there's accident. Tell us about some of In my of- mind,
2: those are absolutely central considerations, things getting out of hand, miscalculations, misunderstandings. One of the things that I learned, particularly this past year in our, in our conversations among a group, which, by the way, is called the Science and Security Board of the Bolton Atomic Scientists. That's the group I am part of was that the people who know much more about nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons command and control than I did, simply did not have confidence that the world's leaders could avoid an escalation. It's low probability, but not zero probability. If Putin were to use a single nuclear weapon, that would violate a 77-year taboo. And the terrible thing about nuclear weapons is they have a signature. You can't have any doubt that that's what set off when the uranium atom visions. There are telltale radioactive products that can't come from any other place. So you know a nuclear weapon has been used. You've crossed some kind of a threshold. And I would ask again and again with one of two metaphors. One, are there some missing rungs on the ladder so we don't worry about climbing straight up into oblivion? And the answer was no, we're not sure there are any missing rungs on the ladder. Is there any firebreak, another image? We're not sure there's a firebreak. So that's why it is so provocative and so dangerous and so uncalled for for Putin to be doing what he's doing. And it set us all back in past years. When we moved the clock, there were multiple considerations that were on a par. This year, as we write, a, we write a substantial essay on the movement of the clock, which is available on on the web. We make clear this time that Ukraine was a was a dominant factor, not one of four or five equally important factors. And, and so that's what comes across. I, I hope it comes across. I hope people will read the statement we have, which is about six or eight pages and quite thorough.
0: The issues cited in the moving the clock forward the Doomsday Clock Forward, that, that contribute to the rising threat of catastrophe are, by and large, created by humans and our systems. And by all accounts, these threats are within our power to mitigate and change. But the lack of leadership and political will are major obstacles. Are you optimistic that average people working together locally, nationally, and internationally have the capacity to influence world events To avert future devastation.
2: Well, first of all, I am optimistic. I do think we are driven towards survival. We have many checks and balances. Even the response to President Putin over last year has been a contained response. It hasn't gotten out of hand, at least so far. I think we are dealing with climate change with international institutions. That it's going to take quite a while, but we've got a global conversation which we didn't have for quite a long time. It was always a sense that the Europeans and Americans should solve the problem first. Now we have a global view. We have a lot of survival instinct built into us. That's why we're around, I suppose. So I'm an optimist. I think human beings, first of all, human beings and voters and citizens influence their leaders. The leaders want to do things that are popular. The reason we're doing this bulletin central phrase is we want to raise awareness. Once people are aware that there are risks they're running and that they are unnecessary risks, they push back on the politicians and they say, do something here. And then they do something also in private industry, in finance, in the NGO world, non-governmental organizations. All of these areas are areas of, of creativity.
0: That was Robert Sokolow theoretical physicist and professor emeritus of mechanical and aerospace engineering at Princeton University, who serves on the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists Board that sets the doomsday clock annually. Learn more about the doomsday clock by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. During the last week of January, violence was on the rise in both the West Bank and Israel. Nine Palestinians were killed by the Israeli army in the Jenin refugee camp, 35 so far this year, and seven Israelis were killed outside a synagogue in East Jerusalem by a lone 13-year-old Palestinian boy. The escalation in violence has occurred as the most extreme right-wing government in Israel's history took power earlier in the month. Leaders of the new coalition government, led by former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, include ultra-Orthodox anti-gay politician Bezalel Smotrich and right-wing extremist Ben Gavir, a supporter of the late Rabbi Meir Kahana, who was convicted for acts of terrorism. Both men, who were appointed to powerful posts in Netanyahu's coalition government, openly support Israel's annexation of occupied Palestinian territories. Some observers describe the current rise of violence as the launch of a third intifada, similar to two earlier Palestinian uprisings over the past 35 years. But others caution that that framing perhaps diminishes the daily impact of the occupation over the past 53 years. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhus spoke with Isa Amro, founder of Youth Against Settlements in Hebron, the largest city in the West Bank, where Israeli settler oppression, backed by the Israeli military, has been extreme. Now serving as executive director of the group Friends of Hebron, he shares his views on Israel's new government and the oppressive reality Palestinians face in their daily lives.
3: I see uh, that the Israeli society changed uh, a lot. And the Israeli society recently voted to the Kahanists, the Israeli far-ify, uh, far racist and extremist, as Itamar, Bingvir and Smotrich. And this is new, that they became mainstream in the Israeli society, especially among teenagers. We uh, were surprised from the result, but we expected it because these leaders were created in the West Bank under the uh, occupation. The occupation made them become uh, very strong leaders, and the occupation gave them the environment to grow and become uh, stronger, and they got that much money, that much political support. That much backup so the israeli society now became affected by the ideology of kahanist uh, kahana and Kah movement which is calling to transfer the palestinians from uh, all over palestine and now especially hebron i see it every day that it's going much uh, more stronger among israeli politicians israeli teenagers and, uh, and many other israelis so in Hebron, we face ethnic cleansing, we face displacement. How they do it? They don't evict you directly from your house, but they make it impossible for you to stay and remain. How they make it impossible for you to stay and remain? You don't feel safe in your house. You don't have any safety or security. Settlers attack you, Israeli army raid your house, arrest your children, beat you up, it checkpoints all over. So you don't feel safe about yourself and about your family. So. You decide to leave. Other thing they do is the Palestinians who live in the historical part, the ancient part of the city, they don't have any social life. They are disconnected. They are separated, segregated inside their neighborhoods. We are talking about 22 checkpoints in less than one square kilometer. We are talking about more than 100 movement barriers, 1,800 shops closed because of the closure policy, more than 1,000 apartments became empty, they changed the names of the streets from Palestinian Arabic names to Israeli Hebrew names. So there is no social life. You don't exist, your identity doesn't exist. They make your life as you are in a big jail, for sure without food and protection. And the third uh, element is that there are no services. You live in an area without any municipal services, no plumbing, no electrician, no doctors, the ambulance to come into that area needs a special permit to come in so you skip all the emergency cases so people there they are stuck and Palestinians are really facing uh, ethnic cleansing and and they are facing displacement and the Palestinian nakba didn't stop on 48 and 67 i founded a group called youth against uh, settlements and i helped them a lot uh, i trained them i am their consultant and they They do an amazing work to counter that policies. You know, they do non-violence resistance, direct actions, uh, sit-ins, rallies. They do media. They do social media. They do documentation. They give out cameras to the families to document the human rights violations. They do a lot of legal work to challenge legally the situation on the ground. They do campaigns as an open show the street campaign. They ask all over the world people to show solidarity uh, with Hebron by lectures, by film screening, by play, by any non-violence activities and actions uh, all over. We do a lot of tours uh, and advocacy and awareness. Uh, and We do social activities to give the families the feeling that they are not alone. I am now the director of an organization here in the the U.S. It's called Friends of Hebron, and Friends of Hebron do a lot of education in Hebron.
0: So how often
1: do you come to the U.S.?
3: I come three, four times a year to do advocacy and awareness. And this time I came to do the reading for a play I wrote with an Israeli playwright. Her name is Inat Wiseman. We wrote a play about my military trial and about PA indictment, and about apartheid and occupation. It's called How to Make a Revolution. This play, we hope to stage it here in uh, in the U.S., and we hope that we get help to stage it here.
4: Say a
1: little more about your, your trial and what did it have to do with the Palestinian Authority
4: exactly?
3: The Israeli occupation and apartheid, they don't want to end their apartheid, their occupation, but they want to shut off the voices who are exposing the Israeli policies of apartheid, the Israeli violence, the Israeli aggression toward the Palestinians. I'm a Palestinian was very critical of occupation, and I use violence resistance to make a change. So they wanted to shut me off. The PA, the Palestinian Authority, arrested me, and they wanted to shut my voice off because of me uh, talking about their corruption, talking about their dictatorships, and their being subcontractor of the Israeli occupation.
0: That was Isa Amro, Executive Director of Friends of Hebron. Find more analysis and commentary on Israel's new extremist government and the rise in Israeli-Palestinian violence by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Castillo, a 51 year old son of peasant farmers, a former teacher and union leader, was the unexpected winner of Peru's June 6, 2021 presidential election. But from the start of his administration, Peru's first Indian president faced resistance and bigotry against its indigenous heritage from the nation's ruling elite. After more than a year of conflict with Peru's Congress, Castillo announced on December 7, last year that he was dissolving Congress and using emergency powers to call new elections. The move was condemned by the Constitutional Court as a coup d'etat, and legislators soon voted to impeach and remove Castillo from the presidency, after which he was arrested on charges of rebellion and conspiracy and remains in prison. Castillo's vice president, Dina Balaarte, was quickly sworn in as Peru's new head of state. In the seven weeks since Castillo's arrest, Many of the former president's supporters have staged militant protests across the country, demanding Baluarte's resignation, immediate new elections, and a new constitution. An estimated 60 civilians have been killed in clashes with police since the protests began. Your reporter spoke with Francesca Emanuele, a Peruvian sociologist who discusses the long-running race and class divide in Peru that's provoked the current political crisis, mass protests and escalating violence.
4: What infuriated the working class population in Peru is that the right finally succeeded Ausin Castillo and that they continued treating him horribly, arresting him unfairly under charges of rebellion and conspiracy that he never committed. But what I think infuriated my people the most is the realization that the extremely delegitimized and racist right was going to be the one that would govern the country along with Dina Boluarte. To give you an example, when Castillo was ousted, he had 28% of support, while Congress had around 9% of support. So people hate Congress. All what Congress did, ousting Castillo, catalyzed the protests we see today, Uh, the impeachment of Castillo that the right attempted many times and finally succeeded, together with the fact that the country was going to run by the racist right that had falsely claimed fraud. But now protests are held around the, the country, and even the middle class are now protesting. As a reaction of this authoritarian government we have that have killed around 60 people in two months, 47 of these Peruvians were killed by the police and the army. And all of these deaths have been classified as extrajudicial executions by human rights organizations in Peru. Most of these killings uh, were because of gunshots, most of them in the head and, or in the chest. Uh, all the people who were murdered are indigenous, working-class people, and people from rural areas. So to understand what's going on in my country, uh, there is a, a big component we have to see, and that's racism and also the lack of representation for working class Peruvians in politics. So, Peru is a highly unequal and racist country where the political class, mainly made up uh, of the elites, is extremely discredited. A political and economic power in Peru is also extremely concentrated in the capital, Lima, where one third of the population lives in only 0.4%. Of the national territory. So from Lima, the rest of the citizenry is mostly seen as ignorant and lesser beings, unfit to participate in the country's governance. And, and, and poverty is vastly worse in rural uh, than urban areas. So, to explain, for example, why protesters uh, protesting now in Peru not only demand Uh, the resignation of the president, Dina Boluarte, the dissolution of Congress and new general elections as soon uh, as possible, we have to see the big picture because they are as you have said, are also demanding a new constitution. They don't want to reform the actual constitution we have that was passed during the dictatorship of Alberto Fujimori and that uh, in many cases are, is the root of the dysfunctionality we have in the political system in, in Peru. People want a new constitution in order to rebuild the political system and establish the basis for a Peru with social justice where the indigenous and the poor Peruvians are treated as equal, uh, which doesn't happen right now. And, and another demand, of course, is, is to release of Castillo from prison. We have to see, uh, finally, this, this crisis as a long-standing political and social crisis, which is reflected, for example, in the fact that we have had six different presidents in the last five years.
0: Francesca Castillo's former vice president, Dina Boluarte has been installed as Peru's new president, as you said, and originally called for new elections in April 2024. But after the protests, more recently, she's agreed to call for new elections in December of this year, 2023. But Congress, last I heard on the news, had rejected moving up the date. How important is that election and when it occurs to the protesters, as as far as the many demands that they do have?
4: Protesters, what they want, and I do too, I have to say, they don't want these authorities anymore. They want them out. So that's why they want general elections as soon as possible. But, yeah, as you said, the fact that this Congress is not approving moving up the elections to 2023, as people want, Shows how dysfunctional the uh, Peruvian political system is. We don't have political parties. We have interest groups like mafia parties. And despite the fact that the country is paralyzed, that is completely militarized, that there are people dying on the streets every week, dying because of the repression by security forces. So, despite all of this, Congress, which is in charge of approving new elections, haven't done it yet. They don't care. They they live in a bubble. And this will continue until new elections are announced. And I have to say, until the new president, Dina Boluarte, resigns too, because Mm -hmm. it's under her government that 60 people have died in my country because
0: of repression. That was Francesca Emanuele, a Peruvian sociologist And board member of the Council on Hemispheric Affairs. Find a link to her recent article titled, Overthrow of President Castillo Exposes the Race and Class Divide in Peru, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KHOI in Ames, Iowa, KRFP in Moscow, Idaho, KPOV in Bend, Oregon, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, And wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program is produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.